You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breach Burke. And uh, as we're moving on uh, through the month of October, I'm thinking it might be good to do an episode where we talk about Samhain or about Halloween, a traditional um, holiday that's associated with what we'll say is Irish uh, in uh, myth and religion, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, um, and what we tend to think of as under the term, uh, umbrella term of Celtic, um, which may or may not be uh, entirely accurate at all times, um, which is a whole... A separate discussion. Um, but I thought, you know, but, but I, I want to talk a little bit about that. And because Halloween is very important. It's, it's a, um, especially if we're talking about the Chthonic realm, and we're talking about the underworld. Um, the, that is the time at which um, traditionally, the veils between the worlds become thin. So we uh, living in our day to day mundane earthly life come in contact with the other world. Um, viewed more, I suppose, as the other world rather than the underworld. Although there's definitely, um, you know, there, there, there's not, um, you know, the, lo- the location of the other world in Celtic thinking is not um, always entirely clear. There, there's still very much a an idea of that being kind of a realm, you know, perhaps off to the west or, you know, off across the river, which, which does fit in with other world themes and underworld themes from other cultures as well. Um, but I'm just going to make a note here. Uh, we are going to talk about Samhain. This is probably going to be put out mid to maybe the third week of October. I'm going to do a special uh, Halloween episode as well on the Morrigan. Okay, so that so there's going to be an extra episode coming out, um, just because again, you know, given the subject of this podcast and and what we're what you know we're, we're talking about and what themes we're going for, it seems appropriate to um, have a special episode for some of these special holidays, uh, especially since these, you know, there's a lot of information and misinformation about what these holidays are and what they represent. Uh, people who come from more, I guess we could say, conservative religious backgrounds tend to think view Halloween as kind of a devil's holiday. And, um, and again, like, like a lot of the, a lot of the um, demonic good versus evil stuff that, that, that has come out of um, that has been, you know, been taken from what's been more like traditional folklore or traditional spirits or ancestral spirits and then turned into something that's, um, that's evil or something to be avoided. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, th- it, this is another example of a particular um, event that is, that is not very well understood by people. So I think it's probably worthwhile to, uh, to elucidate some of that and to see where we can draw some comparisons. Um, there's actually two sources that I want to look at for this. Um, one, just sort of tangentially, just to talk about the figure of the Kalik, um, who is the winter hag. Um, and I'm going to be looking a little bit at um, David Rankin and Sorita Dest's work, uh, The Guises of the Morrigan. And again, as I mentioned, Morrigan will be the Halloween episode. We'll talk about her. Um, but this one is going to be, uh, you know, but the but the, the Kalik is sort of an important figure if we're talking about um, the coming of winter. Uh, in the Celtic tradition, because remember, Samhain is actually the, the end of summer. Okay, it's it's the it's the time at which um, you know the winter the winter comes in, and what we have here about the um, about the Kalik, 
uh, which, well, let me, let me, before I get into that, let me just mention that my other source for talking about Samhain is going to be the work um, of Alexei Kondratiev, uh, this work called The Apple Branch, A Path to Celtic Ritual. Now, Alexei Kondratiev, sadly, is no longer with us. Uh, I've been to several lectures of his back in, oh, I want to say the 1990s. It was a long time ago. Um, a friend and I would go. Uh, he would come to Brookdale Community College, and he was an absolutely amazing scholar. He spoke all of the Celtic languages. I mean, all of them. And there's there's a lot more than you might think. It's not just Irish and um, Scottish Gaelic. Um, there's also, you know, there's Manx, there's Breton, there's, um, you know, um, Welsh is not technically a Celtic language, but there's you know there's 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 aspects that um, that, that tie it to to that language family. Um, there's uh, Alsatian. There's there's all different kinds of um, languages that seem to be related to each other from this part of the world. So this is what we tend to think of as Celtic, like in, in terms of language that that makes sense. And Alexei Kondratiev himself had uh, relatives, I believe he said, from Brittany. So he, he had a tremendous interest, and he was an absolute fountain of knowledge. There was nothing about ancient Celtic folklore that you could ask him that he didn't have the, he didn't know the answer to and couldn't quote an authoritative source. So he's, so, so his work, when he talks about Samhain, I feel like his work is the best, the most scholarly, and the most representative by somebody who, who had a passionate interest in the subject. So, but first let's go back and let's talk about the Kalik. Um, that's spelled, uh, for those of you who, the, the, <laughs> the Celtic languages are very problematic for most people who are not raised speaking them, and sometimes even for people who are raised speaking them. Uh, I was in Ireland recently and was talking to a girl who says, yeah, I took the, took the language for 12 years because I still don't understand a word of it. <laughs> because in, in Ireland, it's required that you take the language in school. Um, and so it's, you know, it, and, and still, but I still think there's about five million um, Irish Gaelic speakers in Ireland. I, I don't know, and, but it is it is a standard part of um, you know of of life in Ireland, at least in the Republic of Ireland. Um, in most places, you'll see signs both in the old uh, Irish Gaelic, or maybe modern, I should say modern Irish Gaelic, and in English. And most announcements are made in both languages as well. So it's. Um, you know, and, and but it is it's a very, very difficult language to pronounce in the sense that what we think, you know, um, those of us who speak English, we look at the the ordering of letters and the words and we think, you know, what we think it's supposed what it's supposed to say, it's generally barely resembles that at all when you actually pronounce it. So Kalik is C A I L L E A C H, and I believe I've heard it pronounced that way in different so I hope again, I hope I'm not not too far afield there. Um, now, just making reference here to um, David and Sorita's work, um, the, uh, the the colleague basically means veiled one, uh, old woman or crone or nun. Okay, um, and so there's so there's this idea of her as an old woman rather than as a beautiful young maiden. Um, in uh, there's a lament called the lament of the old woman of 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 Berry, and in this lament, uh, the colleague. Berry, uh, a crone, recounts, um, recounting a monologue of nostalgia for her youthful beauty and royal lovers. Um, this is clearly that of a crone goddess who represents a bestower of sovereignty to the king chosen to be divine consort, which puts, gives her something in common with the Morrigan. That's, that's sort of the point of, of um, this work. Kali uh, Berry is described as having two sisters, Kali Bolus and Kali Korkadun. Um, 
Duvin, Duvin, I think that's what I think is, well, there's not an H in there, so I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, um, which gives her a triple form that's often associated with goddesses like the Morrigan, and she was read to the, wed to the god Lug uh, under the name of Bui, or yellow. And Lug is associated with Lunasa, uh, or the festivals at August 1st. He's a sort of, uh, kind of a, a fire slash lightning god, and also sort of a trickster, jack-of-all-trades kind of god. But he's a, he's a separate subject, but he's another very um, prominent figure in Celtic myth. Um, <clears throat> okay, the 14th century yellow book of Lacan, the, the Caliberi, is described as having seven youthful periods, marrying seven husbands, having 50 foster children who went on to found many tribes and nations, said to reside around the Berry Peninsula on the cork Kerry border. And um, they note that um, her, that the similarity between the word Kalik and Kali, K-A-L-I, the um, Hindu goddess uh, of destruction, whom we're going to get into her mythology in the new year. Um, but just as um, she's got these sort of 50 um, foster children, um, and Kali wears 50 skulls around her neck, and um, which de depict the letter of the Sanskrit alphabet and the 50 petals of six major chakras from the base to the third eye. Okay. And also the Kali, very similar to the goddess Kali in India, in that they both have blue skin which is rather interesting. Um, <clears throat> so um, the, way that the, the way that she is described here um, in, in a figure like Black Annis, which is another um, English version of this, uh, of, you know, a, a English version of this particular deity in folklore, who's supposed to be a hag who eats children. And, um, but she is, but John Milton talks about it in, um, so he has a, has a quote, uh, her hair hang down about her head, the tain was black, the other gray. <clears throat> her ein sept aunt before was gray. Her gay clothing was all away. Her body is blue as any bead. Okay, so, so Milton also refers to her as, um, <clears throat> as blue. And queen of winter. And as such, at the, she could, but she, because she, was, uh, um, she would drink from the well of youth, and then she would be transformed into the queen of summer, a beautiful maiden, at least one version of the story. So it's actually the same goddess. She transforms from being a hag at the end of winter into being a young maiden um, who then marries the, uh, the, the king. Um, but the other myth has her uh, capturing the, the uh, uh, princess Bridge, named after, uh, well, not I'm named after her, not the other way around, keeps her captive in her cave in Ben Nevis, for forcing her to watch um, Bear's Mantle. Breege eventually escapes with the help of Angus, king of summer, who she marries. Here, the Caliber represents winter, and Breege represents the summer. Okay, and, and Breege is, is a fire goddess. Um, generally, the first association with Breege is Imbolc, um, otherwise known as Breege's Day, or, or Candlemas in the Christian tradition, which is usually roughly around February 1st or February 2nd. And that is a fire festival. I remember growing up Catholic, and we would have, they called it the Feast of St. Blaise, and you had to go and, and you would have candles put to your throat as a blessing. Okay, but this is, this is, carry, this is a carryover from Breach. I mean, um, in the idea that, um, you know, you, the light was now, the light was now strong enough that the, the, the rebirth of the sun at Yule, which is what we think of as being Christmas time, the rebirth of the, the light of the sun, um, at this point was bright enough that, um, uh, I think actually it was Lexi Kondrative who said that the um, those who had to go out and you know, you know, take care of the, the, the livestock and you know milk the cows and take care of the lambs and feed them early in the morning, um, that they could at, at the hour that they had to get up, they did no longer had to light a candle to go out. 
this was another aspect of this particular period of time. And of course, in bulk has to do with lambs, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the um, baby lambs being born and so forth. So there's a connection to that as well. So there's this 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 newness, like the um, it's almost halfway from Yule to what we think of as the spring equinox. OK, um, and there's an interesting um, we, we have Groundhog's Day um, in our modern culture. Um, <clears throat> but the but in, in this particular um uh, there, there's a version of this where the the Kali goes out of her cave to um, to gather sticks to make you know to you know to you know maintain herself through the summer, and if she goes out and it's a fine day, she can complete her task with no problem. But if it's a it's a miserable rainy day, then uh, she can't come out of her cave and she has to wait to a more suitable time. And this gets back to the tradition of whether the groundhog sees his shadow or not. Because if you see the shadow, then obviously it's sunny and it's a beautiful day. And it was considered to be inauspicious if February 1st or 2nd, r- roughly around that time. I think I've, I've heard everything up through February 10th. But if, if, the, um, if the weather was uh, fine on February 1st or February 2nd, then that was considered an ill omen. Because then the colleague would be able to um, carry on uh, for longer. Uh, you know, carry, you know, you know have, have her sway over the land uh, for longer. And that would delay spring. So there's a little bit of um, the uh, a relationship there. Um, and um, uh, Sorita and David point out, uh, uh, Kali Bear, by keeping Breach captive, actually keeps the spring from rising in a similar way to the myth of the Greek goddess Persephone, except that Persephone's lover, Hades, represents winter rather than summer. Um, in another version she of the myth, she's reborn on All Hallows' Eve, Samhain, as the winter goddess returning to bring winter and the snows. She carries a magical staff which freezes the ground with every tap. Okay, so that's all I want to say about the um, the colleague, but that's um, this, this coming of the winter hag and the, and, and the winter queen uh, is part of what we think of as the the Samhain or Halloween. Halloween is is actually the um, the Christian term because it's it basically stands for Hallow's Eve, and it's the eve before um, what we think of now as November first, which is All Saints Day. Uh, with November 2nd being All Souls Day. And a lot of this also corresponds for exa- uh, to other festivals, like in Mexico, there's the Day of the Dead, um, which which takes place around November 1st and November 2nd. Um, so Hallows, Hall- the Hallowed Ones, the Saints, okay, are the ones who are, uh, this was the evening before. And, you know, the eve before these sort of major, uh, these really... Um, Solar, fe- like, well, I guess they're, they're Earth-related festivals because, um, as Kondratiev points out, he says they have to do with with processes that that are not specifically related to the tribe in the sense that they happen in nature whether we want them to or not. They're sort of uh, uncontrollable. And Beltane is the other one on May first, and the eve of Beltane. Uh, Joanna actually mentioned this in our Baba Yaga podcast of Walpurgis Night, uh, uh, Walpurgis Night, which is uh, again, and and both. Um, the day before All Saints and the day before May Day, um, which again, you know, is, is a sign of spring, are both represented as being the um, a time of witches or witchcraft, uh, a kind of a liminal time period. So, um, you know, so this, so this, so it, so it varies. Um, <clears throat> let me get on to talking about. Um, uh, so let me get on to the actual subject of Samhain. Um, and I may have to stop myself here at some point um, because I, I'm, I usually record these when I'm by myself, but I hear that somebody else is in, so I might have a visitor in a minute and may have to stop and resume. Um, okay, so I turn to um, Alexei Kondratiev, 
And he talks about the cycle of the earth and the sun in his book, The Apple Branch. And he says, with the return of darkness, the year returns to the other world womb from which it will grow to blossom again. So he points out that it's, you know, this, this is the idea of death as not being a real ending, but rather a, um, you know, sort of a, you know, it's, it's in a, a, you know, life goes underground to the underworld, to the other side. Um, and then, you know, and, and then it has a chance to, you know, with the foulness of winter, you know, when the light is strong, it will begin again. So it's, it's really, um, it's like gestation in the womb is the way it's, it's sort of perceived that one goes back to the womb of the mother earth. Okay. Um, and he says, so the beginning of a new cycle, new year is a chance to return to the cauldron and receive the blessing of the goddess's transforming power. This involves the, for the land as well as the human individual entering the gyamos mode of experience, the winter mode. Uh, there will be rest, passive attention, attentiveness to the unconscious influence of the other world, and an openness to growth that is slow and unforced. Um, but he says, we must also stress the theme of renewal and sow in the agricultural year ritually comes to a close. All work must be finished, or if it's unfinished, it must be abandoned to give way to new things. Okay. Um... Ending, of course, only serves to dramatize new beginnings. Much of the Samhain festival focuses on a symbolic rekindling of the home fire, a summoning of energy for new tasks in the future, even if they are not to be undertaken for as long as darkness reigns and is welcome. Uh, and he says, another aspect of the new beginning, as the year changes, there's a break in the continuity of time. Okay, so this is our theme of the liminal. Um, liminality has a lot to do with the underworld. There's, um, when we talk about places, whether we talk about heaven or hell or any other kind of underworld realm, we're talking about a realm outside of time. Uh, similarly, when Jung talks about the collective unconsciousness, he's unconscious, he's talking to, about a realm outside of time, and that implies a whole lot of stuff. But, um, so returning to the text, he says, in order for the new year to emerge from its other world source, the god's power over the linear progression of time is held in abeyance. This is visualized as Krononos and Maponos, um, two, um, ancient, two, two Celtic gods, Krononos being a version of the horned god, uh, trading places with neither properly enthroned as the god for the duration of the feast. And the other world can appear unmasked, free of the space-time barrier that normally hid it. Instead of being perceived only as an imagination and dream, the other world can, for the duration of the break, be experienced directly within our world. Celtic narrative tradition is full of examples of such contact, either of incomprehensible monsters suddenly invading the lands of mortals, or of heroes entering the otherwise impervious she, the fairy mounds, and discovering there a hidden world of supernatural beauty, opulence, and excitement. Uh, fairy mounds are, are quite interesting. Um, there's, there's lots of them throughout... Um, the various parts of the British Isles and probably throughout Europe too. Um, but in Ireland in particular, um, I visited, a, you know, a, a whole lot of these kinds of places. And just as in Iceland, we hear about Iceland where there's um, considered to be fairy forts or raths or, or places that are said to be the homes of the fairies that um, people will not touch. Like if there's a, a road project or if there's a, a building project, it's considered extremely, extremely bad luck to mess with the, the mounds of the fairies. Um, I encountered a place in the town of Sligo when I was just in Ireland um, where, like, I, I, I saw a sign for passage tomb. And I asked the woman in the tourism office about this. I said, what's this passage tomb I keep seeing on the signs around town? She says, oh, she says that. She said, um, they discovered, because, well, they were building council houses in the 1940s, and they um, built them, and, and they, as, as they were, ex you know, digging things up to, you know, obviously, to... Um, lay the foundations for these houses, they came across this passage tomb with its megaliths. 
and because uh, normally they're they've got they're, there's a, there's a certain um, configuration of stones that goes along with these. Uh, the ones that you see that are yet generally in a circle around them that are kind of low to the ground are referred to as curb stones. And so they came across several of this you know this sort of megalithic tomb, and. Uh, so they they kind of built around it. There's actually a roundabout, uh, often this little residential area of Sligo, um, that that has those <clears throat> those curbstones, and it's just so weird because it's like right in the middle of just literally right in the middle of a road, like in, in the middle of all these houses, this little grassy knoll. Um, and um, as the woman said, and, and it is true, she goes, "Yeah, somebody put a cross and a couple of statues on it." She just shook her head and she said, "Just don't ask." And um, and there is, there's a huge marble cross and a statue of Jesus and Mary, like planted by the church, like or by the residents, it said in the 1950s. And um, and it, it seems to me, from what I've read, that the Catholic Church wanted them to get rid of the stones, but nobody would touch them because they were associated with. Not only was this a megalithic tomb, but it was associated with fairy fort, so people didn't want to mess with it. So I imagine this was their their sort of charm against the fairies, which is, you know, I don't know. I found it rather offensive, to be honest with you, but. Um, you know, it, 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 I suppose it, it's amusing in its own way. Anyway, so so we, we talk about the this sort of liminal place. Um, and he's uh, back to Kondrativ. He says, also counted among the denizens of the other world are the dead. Those are people whose presence can no longer be experienced in everyday life. The Samhain break removes the barriers that separates them from the living so that during the ritual period, all the members of the tribe, both seen and unseen, can commune together. Okay, so this is an idea. If we think about ancient Roman rituals like the Parentalia and the Lemuria, um, there's also very similar celebrations to celebrate the ancestors and to, you know, feast them and so forth. But there's also a lot of rituals that, that go along with trying to keep them out. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But you don't see that in the, in the Celtic celebration or what we think of as Celtic. Um, he says, finally, the suspension of laws that maintain space-time continuum would symbolically extend it to the suspension of laws of the tribe itself. Now, um, Kondrativ says, you know, you can't, it doesn't mean you can just go break major laws that, 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 that don't apply. He says, but there are many elements of social custom, such as the difference to wealth or age, or the forms of behavior assigned to the sexes that can easily be dispensed with over a brief period of time in such a way that their arbitrariness, their origin in the world of culture, not nature, in the pure sphere of the tribe is pointed up. Now, this, I, I made a note to myself that this reminds me of Bacchic rituals, or rituals of the god Dionysus which were wild, orgiastic, and generally involved people who were considered of lesser status in the community now having um, some kind of a status. And these were rituals that were sort of, I mean, they had their own time and place, okay? But they could also be um, feared by the authorities because this was, this was an overturning of uh, cultural convention and law. Uh, in particular, and and you know, and you know, the, you know, dis, you know, blatant disrespect could be shown for certain people. People could be you know made fun of. People could you know, they, people change swapped clothing and dress, and you know, um, and again, and the people who are the lowest are raised up to being the leaders. So it's it, there's again there's that liminal flip flop kind of quality of of uh, turning turning social convention on its head. Okay, this is being being the norm. Now, he mentions five themes related to the material um, uh, that are immediately apparent with regard to understanding ancient Samhain ritual. He says, first is the theme of renewal. He says this focuses primarily on the, the bonfire that is um, used or that is, that is part of the, the ceremony, the theme of hospitality for the dead, the theme of dissolution, and he talks about disguises and trickery and so forth, the theme of timelessness, which is the momentary escape from the linear progression of time, 
encouraging the practice of divination. And it should also note that um, these kinds of rituals also, I mean, just by design, um, the sacred time is different from profane time. If we go to Merch Eliad, um, <clears throat> there's this idea of, um, you know, you are you are outside of time and you're in another space. And the practice of divination is also um, interesting for this um, these purposes. Because, because now, if we think about what divination is, you're supposed to be able to tell the future, right? And people, and even Jung talks about this in his theory of synchronicity. He says, when you make contact with the collective unconscious, you're working outside the sphere of time. There's a, just as Jung's, in Jung's theory of the collective unconscious, what happens is, you know, the idea is that because the collective resides outside of the realm of linear time, that past, present, and future are sort of experienced at the same time. And the same is true of, of these liminal ceremonies, that you're kind of, because you're outside of the flow of time, um, you therefore can, you know, you can see the future because, you know, where you, which you, where you normally couldn't in your regular day-to-day -day life, you would be able to predict or see or, or get some kind of a prophecy of the future because you are not operating in the field of time. And then he also points to the theme of sacrifice. Harvest must be paid for, so spirits of the land receive tribute. Now, he mentions the bonfire, um, and he talks about it in terms of the Feast of Tara, focusing on the residence of the High King, um, which was the sort of the center. You, sort of, you can see most of the counties of Ireland from Tara, from the Hill of Tara. And um, it's, it's, it says traditionally, he says, Tara is visualized as a square structure denoting completion and stasis. Okay, so the idea that it's like an axis mundi, it's like a central point um, of the world or of the area. And, um, and, and traditionally, this was the seat of the high kings of Ireland, although the high king tradition's a little, I don't know, it's not, not, not quite as firm as, as we like to think. But nonetheless, that's where the renewal of the year would take a seat, and the actual burning of the bonfire would take place at, um, and I'm not sure I'm going to say this right, um, Tlachka, a dozen miles away to the northwest. And Tlachka was a, uh, the eponymous uh, Tlachka, the daughter of the Moru, Mo, uh, Moru, whose Irish tradition members as an arch archetypal druid of immense power, and she herself is primarily recalled as a sorceress. Okay. And um, so she... Um, so yeah, there's almost this feminine aspect to um, to the bonfire. So he says the fire of the new year, thus most appropriately seen as a gift of the goddess to the tribe assembled at the land's sacred center. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now he mentions um, among the crowd of unsolicited and sometimes unwelcome other world visitors to the human sphere were, as we've pointed out, the dead of the tribe. It was the duty of the living to show their returned ancestors proper respect and hospitality. Doors and windows were left unlocked or unfastened as an invitation for such spirits to enter. It seems that the prevailing image for this visitation um, of the dead... Sorry, I have to try to pull something back up here that I don't uh, that I don't have. Um, I've got uh, got this computer that keeps um, pulling out. Okay, um, probably another section I'm going to cut. Among the crowd of unsolicited and sometimes unwelcome other world visitors to the human sphere were, as we have pointed out, the dead of the tribe. It was the duty of the living to show their returned ancestors proper respect and hospitality. Doors and windows were left unlocked or unfastened as an invitation for such spirits to enter. It seems that the prevailing image for this visitation of the dead was that of a great slua or host of usually invisible people wandering through the countryside. 
from house to house with those belonging to each house remaining there to share the festival with their kin. Food was set aside to be consumed by this silent company. Okay, so we can kind of see where some traditions might be coming from here. Uh, jumping ahead. Um, now, they, he's talking about how it was taboo to, to touch any food that was put aside for the dead. However, um, he said the symmetry between the living and the dead would sometimes express itself in a different fashion, um, which allowed food to be shared with the dead by sharing it with the living. Uh, the messengers of the dead would go from door to door and chanting an appropriate rhyme beg for specially prepared soul cakes, um, which, as the fleshly representatives of the giver's dead relatives, would then eat. Uh, in Kiss case, the food of the dead, instead of being taboo, would become a sacrament for the one who ritually intended to consume it. So it's a way of almost like communing with the dead. Um, and as they're noting, it's not only the presenting of food and drink, but all the emotional implications of a family reunion. Um, there are some things that were literally uh, intended as amusements for the dead. And he says the one pastime in particular is bobbing for apples. Um, and he states, although there are fairly obvious reasons why apples should be featured prominently in the feast, they are, after all, the last fruit to be gathered in before the harvest season is ritually closed. Subtler symbolic correspondences seem to be at work here as well, linking them with the world of the dead. Apples exhibit the three primal colors, red skin, white flesh, and black seeds. And like all the natural phenomena with this property are a manifestation of other world power. We often refer see that um, the other world is referred to as the land of apple trees in, in this uh, tradition. He says, and it's possible that the other world apples themselves, eaten by the worthy dead, were considered to be the agents of that final spiritual transformation. Okay. And of course, you're picking up a floating apple from water. So this is like, it's not even, you know, there's this sort of, that, that kind of gives it a unnatural uh, quality to that as well. Um, but he says that it may um, be taking uh, advantage, it seems to be um, uh, taking advantage of the momentary removal of the barrier between the two. Uh, so this leads us to the idea of the dissolution. It says, in some parts of the Celtic worlds, this means shattering the veneer of Calvinistic decorum imposed by a rather anti-Celtic new order. Young people can turn the table on their elders, especially if they feel that their needs have been unjustly belittled or dismissed. dismissed. Trick or treat, anyone? Um, ungenerous or unkind people will, no matter how much social prestige they command during the rest of the year, have their turnip fields torn up on this night. Um, and turnips, we know, are sort of the precursor to the American jack-o'-lantern um, which is the, um, you know, we, we make them out of pumpkins, they made them turnips. Tricks of all kinds, some malicious, some innocent, are played on by on neighbors who usually prepared for it in the spirit of the season. Exploiting the widespread fear of supernatural invasions, bands of revelers disguise themselves as the wandering dead or as sinister underworld creatures. Okay, so there's the idea of dressing up and going door to door on Halloween. Sometimes the disguises are simply meant to be outrageous. Most significant and ancient in this range of customs appears to be cross-dressing, young people of opposite sexes swapping each other's clothes. Okay, and again, that just, he said there's a kind of a shamanistic quality to that, because the idea is that one, uh, as he says, experience human nature as a balanced whole, establishing a polarity in one's own self rather than remaining identified with only one half of a pair of opposites. Um... Now, he also talks about the theme of timelessness with dissolution, underlining the fact that it becomes possible at the year's turning point to step outside, people step outside their locus in the present moment and perceive the line of time in its larger context with both past and future visible, as I just mentioned. In practical terms, this translates in an opportunity to perform divinations. And so this is telling the future. Now, if, if we recall things that we've said about um, the dead in ancient Greece and, and um, the Near East, uh, <clears throat> certainly the, the practice of necromancy or um, goete or goetia 
is is you know akin to this. The dead the dead were very weak, but but they could, but because they were outside of time, they could actually tell the future. Um, so this is this seems to be a, a belief throughout multiple cultures. Although it's worth noting that people that we think of as the quote unquote Celts are actually probably from Greece and Mesopotamia in origin. Certainly uh, more recent um, DNA testing and archaeology is showing that that's the case, that a lot of people did come from the Near East. Um, so this is not necessarily, um, so whether this is a case of um, a, a you know, a home tradition being brought to this area or whether or not this is um, just a, a kind of a universal belief is, is difficult to say, but, but we do know that a lot of these ancient people probably did come from Greece and the near and the, you know and the near you know the near east and of course later from Rome possibly earlier too it's it's but but it's not um some of the indigenous people think what well, people we think of as indigenous or people we think of as celtic or druidic um actually come from uh these you know you know come from some of these other uh, places that we associate with classical civilization um he also mentions here just to get back to divination, that folk tradition associates divination with any calendar date at the beginning of a new cycle. Okay, so it's the idea that there's there's a break and there's an ability to see the future. Uh, now he mentions the Welsh custom of making a mash of nine sorts uh, uh, for the household celebration. He says the fact that it contains nine well-specified ingredients, in this case potatoes, carrots, turnips, peas, parsnips, leeks, pepper, salt, and milk, at once implies that it has a symbolic significance. Nine in Celtic tradition is a number of great power, being an extension of three, the number of dynamic efficiency and completion. Actions are performed nine times, or objects occurring in groups of nine triple triads have the magical ability to manifest other world patterns in this world. Now, immediately I'm, I'm going back to Ovid's Fasti in my mind. It's my uh, ancient Greek and Roman training. But... Um, in Ovid's work called the Fausti, there is a discussion of these, uh, the Lemuria celebration, which is the, um, you know, it has to do, which is an ancient Roman celebration of the ancestors. And uh, I want to actually read, I'm reading a very old translation, so excuse for me for the archaic language, but, um, you know, James Fraser's uh, 1931 translation of Ovid, which is the one that I could most readily pull up. Um this is now this is this is what happens on their, you know, Day of the Dead kinds of celebrations in Rome, which actually took place Lemuria, I believe, was in May. So it's a different different time of the year. But um but Ovid recounts this one ceremony. When midnight is come and lends silence to sleep, and dogs and all ye varied fowls are hushed, the worshipper who bears the olden right in mind and fears the gods arises. No knots constrict his feet, and he makes a sign with his thumb in the middle of his closed fingers lest his silence in an unsubstantial shade in his silence an unsubstantial shade should meet him, meaning a ghost. After washing his hands clean in spring water, he turns, and first he receives black beans and throws them away with face averted. But when he throws them, he says, These I cast with these beans, I redeem me and mine. This he says nine times without looking back. The shade is thought to gather the beans and to follow unseen behind. Again he touches water and clashes uh, Tamisian bronze and asks the shade to go out of his house. When he has nine times has, has, has said nine times, ghosts of my fathers go forth, he looks back and thinks that he has duly performed the sacred rites. So once again, we have a situation, you know, thing associated with ritual actions being performed nine times or with the number nine being significant. And this is, so this is not um, limited to the Welsh or to the Irish um, beliefs. It's also something that... Uh, uh, was practiced in ancient Rome as well. So um, just an interesting kind of um, 
correlation there. Um, uh, and he, now, uh, just to get a uh, contrative, okay, so just to sort of finish up, he says, most forgotten of the Samhain themes today is the theme of sacrifice, except in that so far in certain rural communities, especially in Ireland, still conduct their yearly slaughter of food animals during this season. Traditionally, this takes place on Martin Moss, uh, 11th of November, close to the former Samhain date, according to the Julian calendar. So they put Samhain at slightly later in November. Um, and he notes, um, so he's saying that this is when any animals that were believed to be not fit to survive the winter were slaughtered. Um, so there was a religious element, but there was also a practical element that this was like a stocking of food for the winter. Uh, and he notes in even remote, more remote period, a human being's blood could be offered to the land and his spirit could be sent to speak to the powers on the tribe's behalf. Not only does tradition, both written and oral, maintain this, but there is an archaeological evidence as well of widely differing sorts from the bog-drowned corpse of Lindau Man suggesting a dignified, highly ritualized, perhaps voluntary death, to the grisly and messy pit sacrifices of Swanick and Holshausen, in which people were crushed to death at the end of stakes. Lindau Man may have been an educated, spiritually prepared sacrifice, destined to be an articulate ambassador of the other world, whereas the pit victims were probably slaves, captives, or outlaws, more expendable gifts to the Fomorian lords underground. In Lindau Man's stomach were found mistletoe leaves, perhaps chewed for narcotic effect, perhaps as a theological symbol, and a burnt piece of bannock, which he had recently drawn in the lottery that designated him as the victim. If you remember Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery, um, while it's it's meant to kind of show the barbarism of, um, you know, practices that we um, engage in without really thinking about, uh, she may actually be making reference to some of these ancient rituals. Um, until quite recently in Scotland, the custom of the Bannock Lottery survived as a game in which the chooser of the burnt piece would no longer be killed, but only te cheesed, uh, well, can't speak, teased and chased about the house. Okay, so, but there's this idea that, um, yeah, that, that one by lottery could be perhaps stoned to death or, you know, drowned in the bog or something would happen in a similar fashion. We don't really know a whole lot about these rituals, but um, just sort of an interesting... Um, uh, re relationship there, and 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 Kondratiev seems to think these belong to a much earlier time, because um, uh, you know something that's eventually done away with. Now <clears throat> he talks about um, the um, Maponos versus Kronos, and this actually mirrors another story that of Dermad and Grana. Um, <clears throat> this is one where uh, Finn. Um, who it ends up representing Kronos. Um, he wants to marry, uh, he's an old man who wants to marry Grana. And um, she, she first she agrees that she'll meet him and, and, and see about arranging the marriage. But then when she sees Daramad, the fine young warrior, she runs off with, you know, she, she, she kind of holds over his head some kind of a, a, a curse. And so he, they, they run off together. And eventually what happens is uh, Dharmad is drawn into the boar hunt. I mean, these two, by the way, are considered to be somewhat historical figures, but they, there's a mythology that's kind of combined with them. And, um, you know, uh, so Dharmad, he says, is both confirmed by his status as a fosterling to Angus, the original green man himself, uh, is the Maponos who steals away the king's daughter. Um, the sovereignty goddess, Grana, from her husband Finn, who has obvious Kronos-like traits. At last, Darmad is forced by his Gisa to participate in a hunt for a boar, who is destined to die at the same time as the hero himself, and who, of course, causes his death. Boars are definitely associated with the underworld, and there's the idea of the sow who devours her own children, so she kind of represents an underworld goddess. Um, as we've also noted in the mystery cults, um, the sacrifice of a, of a sow would be part of um, what an initiate would do. And, you know, in terms of 
And remember, the mystery cults had a lot to do with um, the underworld passage uh, and ritual as part of initiation uh, or as a, of escaping, um, you know, the worst parts of death. So, uh, so interesting thing there. Um, so, and then, of course, he's killed at this point, and at that point, um, uh, you know, the... Um, the queen is now returned to, to Kronos, her spouse. But as he notes at this point, um, Kronos's um, horns are removed because he's a horned god. Um, <clears throat> so, and that is also part of part of this. So, um, so that's what I have on the the Samhain rituals. Um, Kondrati, the rest of his work is about how people could recreate kind of a modern uh, Celtic festival. Uh, based on the ancient uh, practices, if one wanted to be more, I suppose, ritually correct. And, um, but so, you know, and, and the way that, the way that it exists today, um, there's a lot of people who still get very, um, a lot of people are really into Halloween. I love Halloween myself. I just, I just love autumn in general, but there's a, um, you know, there's a tradition of not, I don't know. I, I feel like in the 21st century, it's like, okay, we, we still talk about ghosts and spirits of the dead and we can see their obvious source here. But there's also, um, you know, like gory, you know, movies, you know, slasher films and things like that. And I don't know. I, I don't I mean, I know a lot of people are into that that time of year. In fact, there's a whole series of movies called Halloween about that, you know, about a, a serial killer. But I don't know. To me, that's that's not what Halloween's about. To me, it's more about spirits of the dead rather than kind of mass murders and things like that. Um, but, you know, that's a lot of people will disagree with me on that. Um, the other thing is with, with, um, how Halloween and, you know, obviously the, the practice of trick or treating, which was really a big thing when I was growing up, but now as people have become more and more restrictive and fearful, and there's this idea that your kids somehow can't be exposed to anything scary for fear that you're going to traumatize them or whatever. And I just think, give me a break. Um, you know, uh, now it's like, oh, you know, we only trick-or-treat in, in certain areas. Oh, and, and of course, the, the urban legends about people putting razor blades and candy and things like that, which probably started when I was, you know, just about at the edge of my um, trick-or-treating years. And and, it, and it's ridiculous because the reality of that story, it was only happened in one case. And as it turns out, it was the kid's own father who did it, which is really, really strange. But that's that's a different – you can you can look that one up Um the razor blade and candy story. That was that was a really weird one. But, you know, now everybody thinks it's happening everywhere. So now, you know, in the interest of um, hovering over children even more in this day and age, uh, you know, this 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 kind of stuff goes on. And so I'm told uh, trick-or-treating will only, you know, regardless of what the date of Halloween is, it will happen on Saturday from 3 to 6. And I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I have, I just kind of have a problem with that, with the rearrangement of the whole thing and the sanitizing of it, just like I, you know, with a, with a lot of stuff. So, um, to me, I, I would, you know, I, I would much prefer an old, older, old-fashioned, like, all-out kind of Halloween thing. But, um, you know, and get rid of some of this, this serial killer nonsense, and let's just go back to what's, what, really the old-fashioned spooky stuff. But, um, you know, so that's, that's sort of my take on it. And, of course, it's a very magical time, too, which, which, you know, this, 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 this thinness between the worlds. I find it interesting that people who have hard time dealing with people who are, um, who are maybe considered liminal by their own nature, for example, transgender people or women perhaps who are very assertive or men who maybe are engaged in things that are associated more with women, people who kind of flip categories or are between categories, uh, also make these people uncomfortable. 
you know, there's the idea that it has to be one way or the other, and you have to side with one or the other. Um, you know, there's a psychology to that that is embedded in the culture, and not people don't necessarily have to think about it. it it's there, and it's pretty obvious. Um, and Samhain is very uncomfortable for those people, or Halloween, because it's a it's a time when you know when those that, that all those categories get mixed up, and when you know there there's not necessarily what they consider to be that safe boundary. But um, you know, but there's there's a lot more to life than um, than this whole you know good evil dichotomy, and and you know do this and avoid that. Um, life is to be lived, and I think this is another example of of it. So hopefully, you, wherever you are, you are enjoying um, Halloween slash Samhain, uh, whether you do this as a practitioner or whether you're just doing it as somebody, you know, enjoying it with your kids, enjoying it for yourself. Um, and you will hear from me again on Samhain to talk about the Mar again. Um, before I, before I, of course, um, uh, sign off here, I just want to also just quickly mention again, Please visit Cthonia.net. You can see all my episodes on Cthonia.net slash Cthonia podcasts, a hyphen between the two words, and um, look at all of my other works um, that are there and also all the various services that I offer. Um, I'm, you know, I do the podcast, but I also I have books that are out or books that I'm working on, um, and I have, you know, and I offer services like tarot readings, um, Reiki therapy and stuff like that. And uh, so it's it's a good kind of, you know, place to kind of explore the different pages. I am going to be doing an overhaul of the site soon because it, it, I think it really needs one desperately. Um, so, and of course, you know, anybody can contact me through any of the social media with any, any questions you may have about any of it. Um, and I want to thank my patrons on patreon.com slash Chthonia. If you would like to become a patron and support this work, I would very much appreciate that. And... Um, and I think beyond that, I think that's that's everything I want to talk about. So I will talk to you next time.